You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 21st of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up, as China effectively abandons its zero-COVID policy after unprecedented protests last month, we'll check in on how the unlocking of the world's second biggest economy is going. Also ahead... Christmas period is one of joy and it's the holiday of light. But in Ukraine, really, it's going to be dark. It's going to be cold. It already is dark and cold. Embattled Ukrainians are asking people around the world to join them in marking the winter solstice by going dark tonight in a show of solidarity. Plus the day's newspapers and the latest from the business world as warning lights flash for a global recession in 2023. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington today for talks with US President Joe Biden. Peru has ordered the Mexican ambassador to leave within the next 72 hours after Mexico granted asylum to the family of ousted Peruvian President Pedro Castillo. And Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, has been named as his country's next US ambassador. But now, though, it's unclear what spurred on unprecedented anti-COVID lockdown protests in China last month. Perhaps it was hundreds of millions tuning in to see normal life restored for spectators from around the world at the Football World Cup. Or maybe just fatigue after three years of draconian rules. Whatever the cause, China has now responded at a surprising pace, effectively jettisoning its zero-COVID policy. Well, Chris Smith is Monocle's health and science correspondent and Patricia Thornton is an associate professor in the politics of China at the University of Oxford. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Patricia, if I can ask you first, why do you think President Xi has reversed his position? Well, basically, uh, it seems as though the virus itself has become, uh, they have Omicron there, but the particular variant that seems to be circulating is extremely transmissible. And so basically, the earlier policy of zero COVID just proved completely unsustainable on a number of different levels. They were unable to keep up with transmission. It was very, very expensive to continue on with the policy that they had. The economy was uh, was grinding to a halt, and they were just simply unable to uh, to keep up with the, the numbers of cases that were escalating. And Chris, we've been through this in the West. Unlocking means accepting a rise in cases. But here we had a very successful vaccine program in most countries. What's the situation like in China? Good morning, Vincent. Well, the problem that was confronting the Chinese is that having owned the COVID situation and penned or pigged, tacked their colours to the mast with zero COVID as the strategy, that when you then have to change that strategy because it's clear that your strategy is not going to work, it's not going to be a long-term goal. And no one's saying it was a bad idea to start with because when, when there's a new kid on the biological block like COVID, which no one knows what the impact's going to be, the best thing to do is to try to have zero cases of it 
until you get the measure of it. But when you then realise that it's not going to go away, this is not a storm that will blow past and then you unbatten the hatches and back to business as usual, it's going to be here for the long run, which it is, then you have a problem on your hands. This was the same problem that confronted Australia and confronted New Zealand, a few other economies, but the Chinese really went for it. And because they stake their reputation on the fact that we're going to have zero COVID and look, we've made these vaccines, they work brilliantly well. But because we're saying we're going to have zero COVID, you, you may not need to have one of these vaccines. That was the sort of interpretation that some people made in the population. So it really has boiled down to this perfect storm that's been cooked up, which is a reputational problem, uh, a lack of uptake of vaccines, a highly transmissible variant, and the fact that it's demolishing the economy of China and it's having repercussions for global e economic situations, the supply chains and so on, that means that then they're really pushed into a hard place. They've got to unlock, they've got to open things up, but there will now be consequences with about 40% of some of the most vulnerable in the population not being vaccinated and with homegrown vaccines that don't appear to be as effective as those made in the West. And so really there was a question of whether they've got to bite the bullet at some point, and now they are. And Patricia, there was a bit of a sort of smugness in China's approach that they tried to portray that they were superior in a way in their policy to many other nations, but they are effectively doing what the rest of the world did now. What are the lingering dangers for President Xi and the party? Well, this this could be a true and total disaster for Xi Jinping, because as you've just pointed out, he made zero COVID his signature policy. And in 2019 and 2020, they held a, a series of very high level meetings that resulted in some state council white papers in which they declared China's whole process democracy to be superior to any forms of democracy we have in the West because in China they have zero COVID and they protect people's lives and their livelihoods. So um, I, I think that this will pose a serious legitimacy problem for him if the deaths continue to rise as it appears that they have been doing, at least unofficially. They announced five official more deaths from COVID just today or yesterday, I should say, but uh, actually the unofficial numbers look to be staggering. And Chris, I noticed yesterday China was pumping out on uh, CGTN sort of footage, look newly shot, of lots of elderly people getting their vaccines. What's the state of the vaccine program in China? And are their own vaccines effective or are they going to have to actually buy some in? The evidence we have is that they have, they've had two main vaccine players in China and they appear to give protection to a degree but not to the same degree as, say, BioNTech or Pfizer's uh, agents in the West. They also don't appear to provide as longer-term protection. But the key breakdown here is that partly because of the messaging, as Patricia's saying, that Xi staked his reputation on, well, we've, we've taken ownership of this and we've got a zero-COVID strategy. Unlike in the West, where we said to people, this is very dangerous and uh, it kills people and, you know, you have to have a vaccine. And we almost frightened the population into making sure they got vaccinated and got boosted. The latest rounds of boosters with Chinese homegrown vaccines puts the uptake rate very, very low. It's something like 30 or 40 percent. And that's on top of an already low uptake of the vaccine in the first place because people thought, well, they don't have anything to worry about. And when you look at the official figures in the country, which seem to suggest very low rates of mortality, why would you in your 80s go to the trouble of going and doing this? This means that now they have a very, very significant pr proportion of the population who are the most vulnerable people, who if they catch even what's being dubbed 
a lower risk, milder variant of the virus, which is untrue actually. Omicron is a bit milder, but it's milder because it's been hitting populations who are immune in the West. And when it hits a, a naive population, which it will in the East, in China, the repercussions, as we've seen in Hong Kong, can be quite significant. The result is that you've got this low level of vaccine uptake among the people who are most vulnerable, and therefore it can translate into very significant numbers of cases, as we've seen previously. That's why they were really so reticent to open up, because they knew this would happen. And whether or not they will now say, well, we will accept some help from the West with uh, vaccines that will come in that they can use to top up their level of vaccine and help to, to damp down the spread a bit. We just don't know. Mm. Patricia, China's economy uh, has taken a real knock in all of this. Uh, but has it given Xi an excuse to make reforms he might have wanted? He effectively sort of brought business to heal a bit, put it under more control. Yeah, no, he he has not made any sign. There was a, 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 a of making any kind of reforms. There was a central economic work conference that was held last week in Beijing, and there was a lot of concern that was voiced about the low levels of growth uh, in the Chinese economy. There are some estimations that they may actually at the end of 2022 start falling into negative growth or an economic contraction. Um, he, he has not shown any signs that I can see of really relaxing any holds on the economy. And one of the real problems with zero COVID was that there was an attempt after the Shanghai or during the Shanghai lockdown in March to keep people working, but in their workplaces. So unlike the situation we had here in the UK, where people were largely working from home, what they did in Shanghai and in some other places in China, including the Foxconn plant in Hunan, which produces components for apples and iPhones, they literally locked workers into the workplace, but without really being able to provide them with uh, food, medicine, water, the kinds of things that they would need. And so, uh, you know, as one might expect with Omicron and its transmissibility, th those workers became ill right away and there was no medical care that uh, th that was made available to them. So it was already a brewing disaster with uh, infected workers leaping over factory gates and the rest of that. Xi Jinping has not announced any uh, real or uh, clear measures that I can see uh, to this closed loop management system for Chinese workplaces. And there have been uh, there has been no word about uh, economic reform in any broader sense. Chris Smith and Patricia Thornton, thank you very much. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Today, the 21st of December, marks the darkest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. But in many parts of Ukraine, darkness has become a regular occurrence with millions facing hours and sometimes days without power due to Russia's repeated attacks on the energy infrastructure. It's why a group of Ukrainian MPs have asked people around the world to switch off their electricity tonight at 8pm local time in solidarity with Ukraine. 
Among the cities participating by powering down key monuments are London, Edinburgh and Sydney. Earlier, Monocle's Chris Chermak spoke with Ukrainian MP Lesia Vasilenko, who's one of the organisers of the initiative. He began by asking her what life is currently like in Kyiv. Well, it's not easy. There's air raids almost every single day. Air sirens are sounding and there are the usual soundtrack as Russia is hitting energy infrastructure. It was an attempt to make the city unlivable, especially during winter, when temperatures drop to minus digits and when there's limited electricity, limited heat and limited water in some buildings. Nevertheless, the Kievites remain resilient and we make do with these harsh conditions. But definitely Christmas won't be like it used to be in the years past. For one, the city is in darkness. There's no Christmas decorations. There's no festive lighting. And what have these blackouts been like? I mean, how regular and how do Kievites even try to sort of get around them and live in that kind of environment? Well, people cope. I mean, generators are the go-to product, then lead lamps, also power banks. So anything that is powered by a power bank is a hit and very hard to get on the market these days. But this means that salons, cafes, they open up, so small, medium business finds a way around it. But then for other categories of the population, it's really difficult. For example, for senior citizens, it's almost impossible, especially if you live in higher floors, in blocks of flats, you won't be going outside so much just because it's too difficult to do so physically to go up and down the stairs but you won't be risking taking an elevator because you could be stuck for up to 10 hours. On that, as you describe what Kievites are going through there, tell me about this initiative of yours. You're encouraging people outside of Ukraine to essentially shut off their electricity for one hour tonight at 8 p.m. How did this come about? Well, Christmas period is one of joy and it's a holiday of light. But in Ukraine, really, it's going to be dark. It's going to be cold. It already is dark and cold. And uh, during Christmas period, it's uh, usual for people to be distracted from the news. Of course, uh, Christmas decorations and the festive meal take priority over discussing current affairs and uh, world news, especially Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. So we would like to raise awareness during this festive period toward the people who are fighting for freedom and who are resiliently standing up to Russia's aggression are going through and how Russia is depriving 10 million households of Christmas, quite literally. And 21st of December was chosen purposefully. 21st of December is winter solstice. So this is when the day is darkest and darkness stays the longest. So it's a symbolic date for a very symbolic support initiative, an initiative to show compassion, to hold Ukraine and Ukrainians in people's thoughts. And maybe by switching off your Christmas lights, by even going a little bit further and switching off the electricity in your homes and sitting there for the hour thinking about Ukraine and Ukrainians, you could even come up with ways to help. And what has the response been like so far? You have, I understand, cities also helping, participating, including London and Sydney. The uh, response has been phenomenal. I mean, the last three days, I was just constantly on the phone together with my friends, colleagues uh, from parliaments, from governments abroad. Uh, we engaged the media just so pretty much like we did you. And basically, so far, we have a lineup of some major capitals and some smaller cities who are all very keen to participate and show their support and their solidarity with the people of Ukraine.
One of the reasons for this initiative you suggested when you also sent sort of releases is that there has been a lot of focus on military objectives of late, the procurement of weapons, but perhaps less on this humanitarian aspect of the war. What is your sense of the level of solidarity for Ukraine at this point? So we are calling for people to grow on the humanitarian efforts and especially on initiatives that are fundraising for generators, for anything that keeps people warm and anything that gives people light. We would like our cities to survive this winter and we are sure that our cities will survive this winter. But with your help, it will make that difference and it will make it that little bit easier for the Ukrainians who are holding their ground and who are adamant and very much sure that they will not give up. Lestia Vasilenko there on Ukraine's winter solstice call to the world. And she was speaking with Monocle's Chris Chermak. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky will visit Washington today for talks with US President Joe Biden. He will be addressing Congress and it is expected that Biden will announce a new weapons package of nearly $2 billion for Ukraine. This is Zelensky's first foreign trip since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of his country in late February. Peru has ordered the Mexican ambassador to leave within the next 72 hours. The decision comes after Mexico granted asylum to the family of ousted Peruvian president Pedro Castillo. The former leader was removed from office earlier this month after he tried to dissolve Congress and is currently being investigated on charges of rebellion and conspiracy. And Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, has been named as his country's next US ambassador. He was appointed by current Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, who said Rudd's appointment would be seen within the US as very significant, given his stature as a former leader of the country and former foreign affairs minister. Albanese also cited Rudd's extensive contacts in the United States. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Well, let's have a flick through some of the day's newspapers now with Charles Hecker, senior partner at Control Risks. Charles, good morning. Thank you for coming in. Uh, what's caught your eye? Good morning, Vincent. Uh, we're going to start with the New York Times, where we've had a fairly interesting piece of breaking news overnight that says House Committee approves release of Trump's taxes. And what this means is that over the next few days, we're, getting, we're going to get to review six years worth of tax returns at the federal level that President Trump has been trying for years to conceal. You recall this goes all the way back to when he first ran for president, and it's a tradition among American presidents that they publish their tax returns to show, number one, that they're transparent and honest, and number two, that there are no conflicts of interest in their previous dealings or in their financial history. Uh, President Trump refused to do that, and the Democrats have been pursuing his tax returns ever since, and now there's been a vote to release them to the public. And I mean, what are we expecting to see? Because there'd always been a suspicion that he didn't really want to release them because he's not as rich as he claims to be. But is there also anything in these returns that could be incriminating? Well, there are a few things that we've discovered just from this vote already. Um, and the first one is that the IRS actually refused to, in, to audit the president while he was in office, which is something that's required by law. So there are now already questions arising about why didn't the IRS carry out that important function 
function. And, and the suggestion is that there was pressure on them to sort of leave the president alone while he was in office. I think the big revelation that we're expecting to hear is what came of and what the substance is behind a nearly $1 billion deduction uh, that the president took in 1995. In that year, he claimed to make a billion dollar loss in his business, and he's been writing it off his taxes ever since. And how do you think this is going to go down? Because obviously people are interested in this, but they're also exhausted with the kind of Trump show. But I mean, the time of year, I think, is important in this. We're a few days from Christmas. Is it worth the Democrats kind of holding this to that sort of fallow period between Christmas and New Year's? When when will it drop? Well, you're right. Timing here is absolutely critical. And, and the reason why this is happening now is that come January, the Democrats will lose control of the House. This is the last chance they have while they're controlling the agenda um, to, to sort of take their last blow at the former president and, and get this out into the public. Mm. And crossing the Atlantic now, uh, Britain's National Health Service is on the brink. That's right, Vincent. This is the lead story in every single UK paper, and that is that today the ambulance service is on strike in England and Wales. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of battlefields positions here, really, because the government has dug in saying that we don't have any money to pay you. And if we did, any pay rises to you would be inflationary. Um, the ambulance service and the drivers are saying we're on our knees. We're already understaffed. We're already under-equipped. And, and each paper is sort of looking at this differently. You know, the FT predictably perhaps takes a financial angle. Um, the Guardian is urging the government to come to the table. And the Times tells us in its piece that we should basically sit at home and wrap ourselves in bubble wrap to avoid getting injured or doing anything dangerous so that we don't have to go to A&E. And actually that follows some quite extraordinary advice from a British government minister yesterday telling people just to, to not do anything that could lead to danger, to avoid, you know, seemingly things like sports, seemingly hikes, things like that, that could put you in that path. That's right. Don't have any fun today, uh, because if you mess up, you're going to wind up needing an ambulance. And and what, what all the papers are saying is that how will either the government or the ambulance service deal with the fact if somebody dies today while they're waiting for an ambulance? And, you know, the government says that this is on the conscience of the ambulance service. And the ambulance service responds by saying, look, this is already happening. People are already are already dying waiting for ambulances or they're dying in ambulances because once they pull up to the hospital, there's no place to put them. Mm. Um, and turning to Japan, there's been uh, some reaction over its new security policy. That's right. In this studio on previous occasions, we've discussed some developments to Japanese defense policy, um, and that includes significant increases in expenditure and the gradual adoption of a much more offensive pace. And so we have um, a headline in the Japan Times today that says... Envoy says Japan's new security policy has unified support in the U.S. And, of course, those are the words of Rahm Emanuel, um, the former Obama-era uh, White House chief of staff who is ambassador to Tokyo. Um, and he says that he supports Jap Japan's pivot towards a slightly more... I wouldn't say aggressive, but a slightly more forward-looking defense posture. Uh, Japan's constitution says that it can only act in self-defense, but the country is gradually acquiring strike capacity that will really change its position in the Pacific. 
And, you know, have we seen any reaction yet from sort of regional partners or is this sort of still being assessed? Well, good question, because primarily this defense policy is aimed at China and it's aimed at North Korea. And this is part of a gradual escalation in the militarization of the region. Nobody's happy in that part of the world to see Japan take a more aggressive stance, uh, but it completely has the backing, according to Rahm Emanuel, of the United States. Mm. Uh, And final story you've got for us, uh, and it's Boris Becker. Um, This is an absolutely great one. This is in The Times, and the headline says, Fellow inmates saved my life, tearful Boris Becker says. You'll remember that Boris Becker was sentenced, I believe, to 30 months in prison for lying about his bankruptcy proceedings where he said he had no money, but he actually did, um, and he was sent to Wandsworth Prison. He was recently released prematurely, having served only a part of that sentence. And he's given an interview to a German broadcaster and has essentially told all about his time in Wandsworth. um, And he felt that his life was under threat. Um, He describes physical intimidation and mental intimidation. He said he didn't sleep while he was in prison. He was denied phone calls and visits and that basically life was pretty much as you might expect it to be in jail. Well, Charles Hecker, thank you very much. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, it's time now to talk business with Rachel Pupazzoni, national business reporter and presenter at ABC News. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for joining us. Firstly, it feels like not a day goes by without some drama from Elon Musk. What's he up to now? Yeah, well, he's stuck to his word, uh, Vincent. Uh, Now, that's, of course, regarding that poll that he put on Twitter on Monday asking um, people on Twitter whether he should resign as CEO or not. Uh, 17.5 million people voted in that poll and 57.5% of them said, yes, he should step down. So, um, you know, when I saw that on Monday, I thought, oh, is this just another gimmick? Uh, Because, you know, he's uh, one for drawing media attention to himself, but he is sticking to his word, he says, that once a replacement has been found, he will step down as CEO, but said that there was no successor um, at this point in the pipeline. Musk did say that he will continue to run the company's software and server teams once he steps down as CEO. So that suggests that he's still going to be pretty closely involved in the day-to-day operations and development at Twitter. This, of course, comes um, since he took over the company uh, and there's been a lot of uh, calls from Wall Street, from those invested in um, Tesla as well, calling for him to 
take a step back from Twitter because that seemed to be, in, in, in their points of view, drawing all of his attention and time. And we've seen some pretty um, interesting things. Of course, the day you took over as CEO, you took in the kitchen sink, I think. Um, but, you know, there's been more serious ramifications as well, laying off uh, workforce uh, in the US and throughout the world, letting go of content moderators, disbanding accounts of trust and safety advisors that had been set up within Twitter to address things like hate speech and child exploitation. So as you say, never a dull moment with Elon Musk and uh, we'll see what actually happens. I, I can't for the life of me think who would be putting their hand up eagerly to take on mm. the role of CEO. Uh, that'll be the next step in this uh, interesting story. Well, on that point, in this tweet, he does say, as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. I mean, if you'd have said to someone a year ago, uh, the kind of calibre of people you're looking for to run the size of the company, hey, would you like to run Twitter? You'd have probably got lots of great candidates. But is there anyone who will actually want to do this, given one, the structural problems with the company? I see they're facing their final first batch of lawsuits over the sort of termination of lots of people's jobs, particularly Particularly, apparently it was predominantly women, some of whom were on maternity leave. Uh, and secondly, having to just deal with Musk every day and his meddling. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I just can't imagine who would be um, wanting to put their hand up for that. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm sure you've seen it as well. A lot of people sort of leaving the platform as well um, now that he's um, taken over the company. So there's all sorts of questions about the future of the company Um and, and what it will look like, whether it will still exist. Uh, and, of course, central to that is finding a leader that um, uses and um, business, I guess, support as well. Mm. And turning now to another story, failed crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried. Uh, he had the he was the boss of FTX, uh, which is facing all kinds of allegations of misappropriation of deposits. But he's been bouncing back and forth between court and, and jail in the Bahamas for the last week. It seems he's finally agreed to be extradited to the United States where he's facing uh, these charges. How quickly is that likely to happen? We may hear something on that today, Vincent. Um, Bankman Freed is due in court in the Bahamas today. Uh, whether that will lead to um, a definitive answer on when he'll be extradited, uh, we'll obviously have to wait to see. But the fact that he has agreed to this um, is definitely a step in the direction I'm sure a lot of people were hoping to see. You know, of course, he's accused of committing one of the biggest financial frauds in, in US history, uh, you know, uh, accused of using tens of millions of dollars uh, in um, potentially ill-gotten gains, uh, a lot of that donated to US political parties and other uh, community groups. Uh, according to um, court filing, FTX owed its 50 largest creditors more than uh, $3 billion US dollars. Uh, so the company's filed for bankruptcy. There's now um, a different group um, running it. Uh, and obviously, all those creditors, an estimated 1.2 million registered users hoping to get their cash back, will be uh, no doubt watching very closely what happens in the Bahamas today and whether that will be uh, the next step in getting him to the US and facing all these allegations. And 2022 was already a, a disastrous year for crypto. It saw massive falls in value. It saw scams as well of sort of fake coins. I mean, 
Is this going to be the sort of nail in the coffin now for crypto, this FTX case? If you can't trust uh, these uh, crypto exchanges and, you know, part of the law was that it was outside of normal financial controls. It was away from central banks. But are people going to have learned their lesson now? Do you think that this is just a bit of a risky game and are we going to see a bad 2023? Well, that's the thing. I'm sure you've spoken to all sorts of um, people in the sector discussing, you know, whether this is a legitimate uh, thing, if if it's a bubble, if it's actually, you know, going to work. And one of the big issues is the lack of regulation here in Australia. Uh, it's definitely been one of the topics of discussion. Uh, and we've seen so many people over um, this FTX issue lose their retirement funds, their life savings that they were planning on, you know, um, settling down with companies uh, going into administration who'd invested, you know, the lion's share of their wealth uh, into these cryptos. We've seen the value of Bitcoin uh, plummeting in recent weeks. So there's so much speculation as to whether these uh, cryptocurrencies and, and, and NFTs as well are legitimate and what happens with them. I think 2023 will be the year of regulation for these uh, for this industry. And if that can't be addressed, I think you'll see a lot more people just pulling the pin because there's so much volatility and so much speculation and what we've seen play out in the last few weeks proves uh, many concerns of a lot of people. And Rachel, I know you're down under and an Australian Christmas is a sunny one. It's barbecues, it's beaches. But for us here in the Northern Hemisphere, it is a pretty chilly, pretty, uh, if you're lucky enough to get snow, that's nice, but it's normally a bit of a wet uh, affair. So we'll turn on the streaming services trying to find some programs. Um, but fresh data reveals it's not been that good a year for media companies. No, it hasn't. More than 500 billion US dollars wiped off the market for uh, some of the world's biggest media companies throughout the year. Uh, it's been the worst year for global equity since the um, financial crisis in the media sector, which includes you know, production companies, advertising, streaming companies, uh, one of the hardest hit. For example, Walt Disney shares down about 45%, heading for their biggest annual fall since 1974. Paramount Global down 42%, Netflix down 52%, Warner Brothers Discovery. 63% and Spotify down almost 70%. And this is off the back of, I guess, what was a pretty, a couple of pretty good years for these streaming services with the pandemic when, you know, uh, rain, hail or shine, we were all stuck indoors and had very little to do but uh, consume content uh, on streaming services. Of course, now we can get outdoors and actually enjoy our lives. But also the other thing is inflation and this rising cost of living that where, wherever you are in the world, we're all experiencing. So people are cutting back on things like those added extras, like paying for, you know, three or four different subscription services. And that's really eating into these companies. And they've seen, yeah, their worst year on record and and companies like Netflix trying to counteract that by offering uh, lower cost subscription services with ads. So we might see more of those kind of things as we move into next year and people continue to uh, pinch their pennies a little bit trying to get through uh, all these rising costs of living that we're facing. Hmm. Rachel Pupazoni, thank you very much for joining us. Well, that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Carlotta Rabello and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Thank you for tuning in.